and then there were 12. That's right, just 12 days left till E-Day, and with the summer and the high holidays finally over, it's high time for the real campaign to finally begin. We're Haaretz Election Overdose on October the 20th, episode God knows which. Still trying to kick the habit. I'm Anshul Feff and with me is the Dr. Dalia Shendlin. How are you feeling, Doc? Well, you're trying to kick the habit, but I might need to take a little something to pick me up for this election because every time we meet, we say it, this is the moment when it's going to start getting off the ground and it still feels like a pretty sleepy campaign among the public. That's just the vibe that I'm getting. I don't know if you're getting anything else. Well... You may not be feeling the vibe, but I'll tell you where they were feeling it. They were feeling it in Kfar Chabad on Monday night. Did you follow the, the event there? Well, it was a little bit hard to miss it because everybody was talking about the next day. Tell us why. Well, for those who aren't familiar with the, the tradition, our Kafot Shniot is sort of like, for those who are really into uh, Simchat Torah and dancing with the Torah, and everything else that happens in Simchatra, there's an extra round of it once the the festival is over, and the and to kind of show that it's uh, it's no longer Chag, but still they're dancing and there's festivities. Then it's done also with musical instruments and big venues, and people come from around, and it's a big show. And like every other Israeli religious tradition, it's become politicized as well because two weeks before the election. How could it not be? Kfar Chabad, a uh, village just a few minutes away from Ben-Gurion Airport, traditionally hosts one of the main Hakafotchnion events. And who were the guests this time? Well, I think Itamar Ben-Gvir was one of them, and the other one was one Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, just before we get to that incident which uh, captured everyone, there were some guests who came before that. One of them was Benny Gantz, leader of National Union, and along with him there was also his co-leader of that party, Gidon Sar. By the way, Kfar Chabad, any idea what the election results were like there last year? I'm guessing it was mostly for Haredi parties. Well, you'd be wrong. Uh, I checked on the Central Election Commission website last year's results, Kfar Chabad gave 58% to religious Zionism. That's actually the highest result that religious Zionism got in any town within the Green Lines. There are a tiny handful of settlements where they scored even higher than that, but that's still an incredible result. So no, But the, then maybe in that case, we should be saying that religious Zionism is at least in part a Haredi party. It is in part, but then the there's are. an argument whether Chabad is actually a Haredi movement. They would say that we're a movement of all the people of Israel. And they're not the same as your regular Haredim, if there is such a thing as a regular Haredim. The two other Haredi parties got their... Uh, United Torah got 15%, Shas got 11%, Likud got 11%, which basically means that if you add all those up... The four parties of the Netanyahu bloc got 96% of the vote in Kfar Chabad. There's another discussion to be had about what So this what says. did happen? So what, what did happen but, when Netanyahu but showed the up? Fact, but the fact that Gantz showed up was very interesting because Gantz got booed there, but he still made a point of, of uh, showing up because he really wants to boost this narrative that only he can somehow bridge the divide and bring the centrist and the left-wing parties together with, with the Haredi parties in a future well, coalition. But that's... 
I mean, that, 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 that has been the centerpiece. Sense. That has been the centerpiece of their campaign, right? They have been saying we are the only ones who can form a government because we can pull the Haredi parties into our coalition. But the Gantz uh, appearance there is is the side story. The main event was, according to the results of last year's election, the most popular politician, Inkvar Chabad, took to the stage. Itamar Bengvir, the co-leader of religious Zionism, the leader of the Jewish Power Party, obviously very, very popular, Inkvar Chabad, took to the stage, wild cheering, a rock star reception. Itamar Bengvir started to make a speech, and then suddenly the master of ceremony said, and we will now receive with great blessings the former prime minister and leader of opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu. And Bibi Netanyahu did not go on stage. For some Why not, Angel? Well, what was really interesting here was that there was a live feed of a number of cameras of the event, and we were seeing all of this, those who were watching it live, and people like me who watched the recording afterwards, were seeing the whole thing fold, the whole thing unfold uh, live, so there was a commotion at the edge of the stage. Itamar Bengvir with the Likud MK Amir Ochana were arguing. There were a couple of Chabad rabbis there trying to, try, trying to make peace. And suddenly from behind the stage, we heard a voice, we don't know whom, saying, Netanyahu will not go on stage while Itamar is there. And Bengvir, after a, few, uh, after a minute or two, left very angry. There were cries, Bengvir, Bengvir. And finally, Bibi Netanyahu appeared on the stage, and this begs the question, Netanyahu is the patron of Bengvir. He is the man who forced Bengvir and his now partner, Mattel Smotrich, to merge their list to form the joint list, which is religious Zionism. He's been closely coordinating campaigning with Bengvir in the last couple of months. Why wouldn't he go on the stage with him? Well, I think the point is that Netanyahu is playing a, num- a number of games. He needs the further right parties on his side, as you have written about eloquently, but he also, like most other parties, is fighting over what we sometimes call the moderate right or the only sliver of the right wing that has some potential of moving across the blocks, the pro-BB block and the block of parties that is against BB. And I think that he's concerned that at this late stage, they are the key kingmakers and that he knows, I'm sure he knows because he does polling just like I do polling, that Ben Kavir is a significant deterrent for them. A lot of them feel like we may be on the right wing, but we don't want these extremists in our government. And the basic uh, uh, look of that event was that Netanyahu was trying to sort of, you know, not be seen together with him and just not remind them, as if anybody's going to forget. Yes, well, Bibi has a dilemma here. On the one hand, he needs Ben Kavir to help him sweep up every last possible vote from the right wing, people who may not be voting, people who, if uh, uh, they were voting just for a small right wing party, that party may not uh, cross the threshold and therefore their votes will be lost. Bibi needs him. On the other hand, Bibi also is afraid of being too tainted by the association. So Netanyahu has sort of got this kind of compromise whereby he is the patron. Everybody knows that he hosted Bengvir and Smotrich to, to seal the deal and who didn't make a secret out about it. He, he even made a statement. And at the same time, no photographs. Do you think that's going to work? I have a hard time believing it's going to work. I mean, Bengvir has been the centerpiece of this election. Everybody's talking about him. He's kind of the new up-and-coming thing. If we have a surprise uh, that defies polls on election night, it might very well be in the direction of Bengvir. It's hard to believe anybody's going to forget about him. But what else is going on this week? So, yes, this rather frenzied half week of campaign. Actually, it's a campaign, but the election has started. 
last night or Thursday morning in New Zealand. The first vote was cast by Israel's ambassador to New Zealand. The diplomatic vote has begun. So officially, we're already in the election. And if voting started in New Zealand, then it probably also means it started in Australia for Israeli diplomats. And Australia has also been in the news, of course, because of their reversal of their policy of having recognized West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which created political kerfuffle back in Australia. When they changed their mind this week, that made the news in Israel, got a lot of people talking and got the right wing pretty upset at, uh, at Lapid and the change government. Netanyahu, of course, went to town on the issue saying they can't conduct foreign policy. I expanded Israel's foreign relations. He's losing support. Do you think he's right, Anshul? No idea. Um, so we have uh, one final preliminary stage before elections are actually held. It's the remainder vote uh, agreement signing. Why is this important, Dalia? Well, it's important because the way the election system works is that it's a pure proportional representation system. The percentage of votes leads directly to the percentage of mandates in parliament. But what if a person gets uh, some number of votes that doesn't equal a whole new mandate? So generally, in recent elections, one mandate past the threshold, of course, is worth about 35,000 to 45,000 votes, depending on voter turnout, of course. What if somebody gets 10,000 votes extra beyond the number of seats? What do they do with those votes? Well, the parties generally go into agreements with one another, usually parties with which they are somewhat aligned, so that those extra votes aren't wasted. And that can often tip a party after most of the counting has been done. We often find out a day or two later that the final results have shifted by perhaps one seat. Doesn't sound like much, but of course, it's critical when we're talking about blocks that are so evenly matched throughout this election campaign. So who are the interesting pairs of parties that have decided to share their excess votes? Well, Netanyahu's block is very well organized. It's four parties, two parties each, Likud and religious Zionism, Shas and UTJ. The uh, non-Netanyahu block is a lot less organized. So Yesh Atid yeah, and National Unity, the two centrist parties are signed up. Labor and Merits, the two left of center parties also signed up, which leaves uh, Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu without a remainder vote partner. They may decide to do with one of the smaller parties, but it's probably a waste of time. And then we have the big question, what's going to happen amongst the three Arab parties? Now, there are two parties in the polls crossing the threshold. That's Hadash Ta'al and uh, Ra'am. The arithmetic, the, the the electoral consideration would mean uh, that they should be the, be partners in their remainder votes and not sign with a party which is unlikely to cross the threshold, which is the third party Barad. However, Khadash, being the dogmatic communists that they are, have a problem in uh, in actually doing what's politically advantageous and less ideological, pure, and it seems that they're leaning towards signing one with nationalist Barad, which for some reason they feel is closer to them than Islamist Ram. Well, maybe because they're all secular parties. Hadash and Baal. Yeah, but nationalists and communists, they get along together? I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense if you want to actually win another seat in the Knesset. So, Well, what's interesting here, I think, is the total demise of the joint list. I mean, from being in a situation where all of those parties were running together, what we're seeing now is they can't even make an agreement to share their excess votes. And I think that that is going to be yet another deeply demoralizing factor for Arab voters who are already so demoralized that they're uh, planning to vote in extremely low rates. And most surveys we see show at this point, we're talking about 39% in a couple of surveys focusing on the Arab community in Israel. So I'm sure that this kind of 
negotiation and inability to even sign a vote sharing arrangement is not going to help. There was a poll this, uh, this morning for Channel 12 that, that said 44% and it's slightly beginning to rise. Who knows? Uh, what else uh, did we have this week? Oh, uh, Twitter. Twitter deleted Twitter. fake accounts which were trying to influence the elections. Some of them were actually not trying to influence the elections for a specific party, but to somehow uh, sow discord and deepen polarization within Israeli society. Uh, this is only a few dozen accounts. It's probably not a major issue, but it does lead to bigger questions of electoral integrity. And the topic that we report a lot about here in Aretz, about how uh, how social media is being manipulated, data mining is taking place in this uh, campaign. That's true. And I personally am interested in a different aspect of the electoral integrity question. Uh, apropos Twitter, I happen to have listened in on a specific session held on Twitter spaces yesterday by none other than Benjamin Netanyahu, who was answering questions from people pretty spontaneously. And one of the, a number of the questions, I would say, uh, mostly from Netanyahu's supporters on this call, were about what he plans on doing to ensure electoral integrity. And it wasn't so much about intervention in the, electro in the cyber sphere. It was about how to make sure that the vote counting, that the voting process and the vote counting process is uh, sufficiently, you know, clean of, and, and free of interference or wrongful counting somehow. And it, it was a discussion that ventured a lot into American territory, although in much more moderate language. And the, the, the money quote for me was when Netanyahu answered that we will have electoral observers. And he said, I quote, in all sectors including those prone to disturbances. And using the word sector in Israel, migzar, is often kind of a code word for the Arab citizens of Israel. So I have a hard time believing anybody would have misunderstood what he meant by that. He also mentioned cameras, which remember last time, or not last time, but in uh, one of the earlier cycles, uh, there was a big legal uh, challenge to using cameras uh, after they were found to be placed in Arab uh, voting stations. So I think that, you know, I don't think that this is necessarily going to turn into something as dramatic as the challenge that we're seeing to electoral integrity from the right wing in the US and the attempt to sow disbelief in the electoral results. But I do think there are undercurrents and I, I just don't know if it would get any stronger. Do you think that that's gonna get stronger at all? Look, I can't predict, but it's interesting that, I mean, we're talking here basically about voter intimidation. We're not, they're not really exactly. going to check how well the, the votes are counted. And that's an important thing to check how the votes are counted, and Israel actually scores, there are many aspects of Israeli democracy which don't score very highly, but in the international servers of these things, the integrity of the vote, the fact that people trust their votes to be counted and to be counted accurately is actually quite high in Israel, and Netanyahu is trying to cast a doubt on this for reasons which are probably obvious. When he tried back in 2019 to, uh, to intimidate in this way Arab voters, I, if I'm not mistaken, in the election after that, in the second election of 2019, it actually, uh, the Arab vote actually went up. So uh, this may have misfired and this may misfire again. We'll see on November the 1st. Uh, other things on the election trail. Uh, Sarah Netanyahu hosted uh, last night on Tuesday night, sorry, Wednesday night, a uh, her own uh, special election rally. This was aimed at religious women. Now, it's not a huge uh, story, but Sarah Netanyahu, to the best of my knowledge, has never actually 
done a political rally on her own. It's always been by her husband, Bibi's side. And I think it's an interesting uh, anecdote because we're seeing how, and we spoke about this a few minutes ago, about how uh, Likud are really trying to target that. Uh, some call it soft right, some call it modern, orthodox, soft religious, the light, call it what you will, uh, vote, which is perhaps the only small floating vote between the blocks. And for some reason, they think Sarantanyao may have a special rapport with some of those voters. I think that uh, the Sarah Netanyahu phenomenon is interesting in general because she does seem to be one of the most kind of electrifying figures. I mean, on the center and left, anybody in the anti-BB side seems to feel that she's toxic. Not just, you know, there's accusations that it's kind of a sexism, you know, they don't like the sense that she seems to be so influential. But I think what they really feel is that, what you really hear people say sometimes is that Sarah Netanyahu actually governs the country because she rules BB, she decides things for him. And that has become a kind of, uh, again, one of these undercurrents that drives the center and left crazy, but is but there is an opposing force on the right where I think that people like her very much and see that she's part of the Netanyahu you know, family that has devoted itself to the country. And I hear people on the right wing saying, we love you, Sarah. So no, I, I, I hear that, that, I hear that as community. well. I hear that as well, but it's mainly amongst hardcore Likudniks. I'm not quite sure that she is the right person to send to wavering female religious uh, voters in Givat Shmuel, which is where the rally took place. But as we're talking about the Netanyahu family, we also have this... Oh, by the way, tomorrow is Bibi's birthday. He's going to be 73. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Grandpa. But... Uh, Many times over, Grandpa. Well, you said that. Uh, there might be somebody else who's going to be a Grandpa eventually. Perhaps. Um, perhaps. For another episode. Bibi's book, Bibi, My Life, came out uh, last week in Hebrew and in English simultaneously. Uh, it's, I think it's a good book. I think it's very interesting. I think that uh, anybody who has uh, a serious interest in Israeli politics should read that book. The relationship, some of the parts there to the truth, not always that close, but it's a very interesting book. But we were having a, a rather spirited uh, difference of views earlier before before we recorded uh, Dalia. You think that this is that that this is very much a campaign toward the way Netanyahu is pushing his book. I think it's more coincidental. Uh, the dates were known long. Uh, the date for publication was known long before we knew when the election would take place, and I think. I don't think most Israeli voters are following Netanyahu's round of interviews on the American networks, but what do you think? Well, I sort of disagree, and naturally any discussion we have is spirited, not only our disagreements, but I think that Netanyahu's book, you know, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what the event is. Whatever event he has, he will use it as a platform for advancing the themes that he wants Israeli voters to hear. Netanyahu is a very, very savvy media person. You don't need me to tell you or anybody that point. And when he goes on, whether it's Twitter space in Hebrew, talking to, you know, the you know, average Israelis who are asking questions or MSNBC, where he gave a long interview in English. Sure, I doubt many Israelis watch that interview, but he knows that any Israeli journalist could be watching. We know that Bibi gives inordinate amounts of uh, sort of power to the media. He believes that the media has an almost, you know, omnipotent sway over Israeli voters and that anybody might be covering anything he says. So, whether or not the timing was completely coincidental, I don't know. But certainly he is leveraging the 
you know, the opportunity to push his book to push out campaign themes. And when I say campaign themes, I mean, we're hearing him make the case over and over again that this government was bad for Israel, that they destroyed the economy, that they're not good for Israel's foreign relations, that the deal with Lebanon, which we'll talk about hopefully, is a bad deal, and that he wants to come back and be prime minister. So if that's not a campaign stump speech, I don't know what is. Well, every speech of Netanyahu is a campaign stump speech. But we, we, you know, we That's right, he's a asking, permanent campaign guy. We, yeah, he's a he's permanent total campaigner. But we were asking ourselves this question, a number of people here at the, at the paper, I was talking with some editors about it, I'm obviously obsessed by Netanyahu's book. I wrote a Netanyahu book. I'm quoted without my name being mentioned in Netanyahu's book, for, uh, I have to say. Uh, but um, I'm not sure that this book will play a role, any kind of role, in, in the election campaign. I don't think anybody's going to read the book and be swayed either way. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of, uh, of the interest in it is what we call in Israel, branjai. you know, it's the... The, the media, the literati are interested in in the book. They hate it or they love it. And somehow I think Israelis have such a clear <laughs> view of how they see Netanyahu. Even the book, and the book actually, I think for a lot of people, will will have some interesting and maybe surprising things in it. I don't think that, that many surprises. I still think that we all have such a clear view that the book is is, is there for Netanyahu both to make some money and uh, that's his his claim in history he wants this book to be the historic record of of his time i don't i, I don't see it featuring in this election at all oh no i don't th i think you're right i don't think the voters are going to read the book and any voter who reads it knows exactly whether they like him or hate him beforehand and in fact what i get out of the book is that it's a very very carefully staged managed micromanaged i mean we had rumors that netanyahu was editing it himself or parts of it because we know that he's very much a micromanager. I mean, it reads to me like, you know, the kind of very co tightly constrained construction of, you know, who he wants himself to be, probably in response to all those other biographies, including yours, which is naturally the best of the bunch, um, that he wants to, you know, make sure that his version goes down. But of course, the voters aren't going to read it beforehand. And you're right, I haven't found too much interesting in it yet. Although, uh, what I found, as you, I think, wrote very well in, a book, in, uh, in your book review, is that it says more about him than the content says about Israel. Most of the stuff in there, I think we know already, but it, it tells just, again, reinforcing what we know about Netanyahu's personality. Um, so what else is going on this week? I think that we're, I want to move into what else, other things that happened this week that actually were surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, focused on something we don't always give enough attention to, the issues. Remember the issues? The I what word, are the, issues? the I word, yeah. The I word. Uh, yeah, we actually had some issues this week, and actual plans and manifestos and programs being uh, being published by by parties so national union decided to uh, present the eisenkopf plan what's the eisenkopf plan well the eisenkopf plan relates to the issue of internal security in israel policing law enforcement crime and what i found interesting is that they, the language around it, they're framing it in terms of this word mishilut, which means governability. Anybody who listened to our last season certainly knows that we were talking about this because it's become a big right-wing theme that crime in Israel, or not just crime in Israel, that law enforcement and specifically the judiciary uh, are, are not working well together, that the, govern, the government can't govern well enough or even implement law enforcement well enough because it is held back by these pesky things like due process, civil rights, procedural stuff. 
And so it's become a bit of a, a, a dog whistle to the right to talk about governability, mishilut, which means basically set us free of these judicial constraints. Let us rule with a, with a tough hand. Let's get tough on crime. Now, I don't think the plan itself, I, don't, I, don't, I can't say that I've seen a ton of detail on it, but it's definitely trying to convey that we will be tougher on crime. We will go further. We will allow ourselves to search without, a, you know, without constraints if we need to. And I think that they're trying to portray that, that the right doesn't have a monopoly on this you know, talking tough governability issue. I agree. There's nothing really new in the plan. And some uh, keen, uh, sharp-eyed reporters uh, found that large parts of it were copied from, from plans that were already being implemented or at least supposed to be implemented by the outgoing government. So there's nothing that original in it. What's interesting in it, and as you said, they're trying to show that the right wing don't have a monopoly. And this is, on the one hand, National Union sort of saying to the right wing, you know, we're, we're serious about crime as well. We're serious about Michelot, about governability. And at the same time, they're giving it to Gadi Eisenkot, number three in the list, the who is seen as the more left-leaning of the leaders of National Union and was until recently regarded as the hottest political star, the former chief of staff. Uh, and it's sort of been a, a bit underwhelming in this campaign so far. So it was interesting that they gave it to Eisenkot to you know, not just to front, but say the Eisenkot plan. But other than that, it just seems to be, it, it doesn't seem very substantive. And, Unlike the other plan that we're going to talk about now, which is the religious Zionism, legal and judicial reform plans, which were presented uh, on Tuesday. And you've, you've spent quite some time uh, perusing this document, Dahlia. What, uh, what were your main impressions? Well, I have, but I, I, I will. And I've, of course, I want to talk about nothing other than the legal uh, and judicial reform issue. But I, but I do want to go back to one more thing about the Eisenkopf plan first. And that's the fact that the kinds of details that we have seen from that plan relate to allowing the police to go much further in terms of how they conduct their, you know, their law enforcement and crime prevention. And I think that there is another dog whistle here, which is that the biggest conversation about crime in Israel relates to, again, the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, high crime and murder rates, gang violence, and, you know, there's every day there's some new publicized murder. And I think that definitely the way it's being portrayed is signaling, all, again, to the far right that we will get tough on crime, and they don't have to say it, and I think everybody knows what they mean, that this largely relates to the Arab sector. The question is whether that's going to also be picked up on uh, by Arab voters who say, oh, they're coming for us, and even though they want greater policing, whether they think it's going to be going too far. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, in terms of religious Zionism, well, I mean, you have to stop me here, Angel, because I could talk about this for a long time, but I think that we should run through the main points. And as you noted about the, about the Eisenkot plan, with relation to policing, a lot of this is not original. It all builds on the themes that the right wing has been talking about in terms of why the judiciary is an enemy of the people, essentially, for years. So none, most of the stuff isn't that original, but we can run through the main points again, where they simply try to make the same reforms they've been talking about in a more extreme way. So they, of course, they want a political takeover of judicial appointments. They want six out of the nine uh, members of the Judicial Appointment Committee to be politicians instead of the current four. They want what they call an override law. What, they, what they're trying to claim is that it would formalize the court's ability, the Supreme Court's ability to challenge laws that are deemed uncontroversial, but also allow the Knesset to come back and override a court ruling. But in truth, I read their proposal. It guts judicial review. It basically is a sham. It means they can create an elaborate facade 
of allowing judicial review that's almost impossible to implement, and the Knesset can almost automatically overrule it. I think the more accurate description would be the law to cancel judicial review. They want to split the attorney general role. That's something that's not terribly controversial in itself, but together with the whole package is meaningful. They want to limit standing, that is the ability of people to petition the Supreme Court. Fewer and fewer people should have access to the court. Lots of other technical things. And one part that I think is making particular waves, all roads lead back to Netanyahu really, is that they want to cancel the criminal status of the breach of trust, maybe even retroactively. What does that mean, Anshul? Well, it means, first of all, that if that happens, then most of the charges, three out of four of the charges against Netanyahu, uh, no longer exists. Now, they've said, and Netanyahu has said, that there will be nothing retroactive. That's bullshit, because once a criminal charge does not exist anymore, no court is going to continue prosecuting upon it. And the judges aren't going to sit for another who knows lo who knows how long, because this trial could still last for a couple of years. And they're not going to sit in, in, in the courtroom and talk about a, a criminal offense which doesn't exist anymore. It's just, it, it just doesn't, there's no world in which that happens. Once breach of trust does not exist, it's not in the Israeli law books, it's not in the Israeli law courts either. So that's, that is obviously very much something which would uh, help Netanyahu if it happens. But what's interesting about this is I don't think Netanyahu wanted them to publish this plan. And I've I had yesterday a long chat with Simcha Rotman, the religious Zionist and Knesset member who presented the the plan. He's their legal eagle, and and he's been on this issue for years. We should say yes, this has been a, and, and it has to be said that that there has been a, a, a lot of criticism of the breach of trust clause even before Netanyahu was uh, was put in trial. It's not. It's not just about Bibi, and that's really mainly his argument. Every time you try and bring it to Netanyahu, they say, hold on, this is a comprehensive legal reform plan. Don't personalize it. We're, we, it's not about one person. This is, about, this is something that we've been very passionate about for many years. Rotman said, this is what I came into public life to do, and he's not, he's not lying there. Yes, it is very advantageous to Netanyahu, but they obviously don't want to discuss that uh, that aspect of it. I don't buy it. I don't see that you can take this out of context when they're talking about this plan that is coming out a week before the elections. I can't imagine that they think any one voter would really feel that canceling breach of trust would affect his or her life if not for the BB case. Why is that such a high priority? I mean, you know, the problem with this plan is that not only does it essentially you know, I don't want to, I, I hate to use these cliche alarmist terms, but it kind of crushes the judiciary, which is essentially the backbone of protecting the citizen in Israel, which, you know, we live in a country with much fewer protections for individual rights and minority rights than most other countries. Um, you know, there's a legal debate about this, but we do lack a, co you know, a unified formal written constitution. We only have one chamber of parliament. We, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons why the judiciary has taken a more you know, active, proactive, some would say activist role. And this, you know, basically says the last remaining institution where individuals can protect themselves, can be protected and can be protected from the state, we want to, you know, completely straitjacket them. But we also have, we want to do that in the service of an agenda. And part of that agenda is protecting Netanyahu. So that's why we see this prominent place for canceling breach of trust, uh, which honestly, I, can't, I just can't see how it affects any one person's life. And they're quite open about the rest of their legislative agenda. What they're saying is that once they pass the override law, for example, and they basically kick out the legs of judicial review, that they can pass a whole slew of right-wing priorities. 
uh, in, you know, through legislation, which will not, there will be no way to challenge that legislation, such as getting really tough and passing laws to kick out asylum seekers in Israel, um, passing the law to legalize settlements. And we, uh, you know, we can remind listeners that there was, Knesset did pass such a law in 2017, and it was struck down by the courts in 2020, which surprisingly little fanfare, strangely, but they want to, re- of course, they want to pass that law. Um, and interestingly, they also mentioned in their plan that they want to pass, finally, a draft law, which is interesting because, you know, and Angela, you and I were discussing this before. I'll be interested to hear your take on it. Just to be it. clear, it's, a dra- there, it's not a, a draft law. It's a law about the draft. Right. A law, exactly. Thank you. Yes, it's a law to draft people uh, who are currently not serving. Now, who would those people be? Of course, they're Haredim. That has been really a thorn in the side of the Israeli public for many, many years. Now, it's interesting that the court has on occasion ruled against the attempts to pass certain laws for the draft because they say they violate rights of ultra-Orthodox. In a way, the court has sometimes protected the rights of ultra-Orthodox. So I think that's an interesting point considering the ma- you know, the major a- one of the major accusations of the right wing for years has been that the court you know, it has an agenda, it, wants, it only supports one side of the political map, and it doesn't represent the entire Israeli public. So what do you make of that, Angela? I don't think that this is the right time or forum to start going into the nitty-gritty of this plan for one very simple reason. This is an election promise. They're saying to their voters, vote for us and we will pass this. Now, we know very well that very few of these election promises ever materialize, certainly not in their entirety. Uh, whether or not Netanyahu will have a majority and whether or not he'll want to pass all these things is debatable. And as you mentioned, there are parts of this law where other partners of uh, of the Netanyahu coalition would have, would have problems with, the Haredi parties. I think the real question now, and we are an election podcast, not to the Haaretz Law Review, is, is, is the fact that they're putting this out there now, two weeks before the election, is that something that's going to, Create it could cause any harm to the Netanyahu bloc, and from what I understand from my conversation with Rotman, Netanyahu is not very pleased that this plan came out. We also saw it from the way he was kind of trying to equivocate in, in his reactions about it, and basically the argument between religious Zionism and Likud, and they are coordinated as we said before, but n- no coordination is is perfect is whether it's more important to put these plans out now and try and, as Rotman says, to excite people who are fed up with politics and don't believe that anything's going to change and give them a feeling that something's going to change. All these jaded right-wing voters, uh, real or imagined, who are sitting at home just waiting for a, a legal reform plan to to push them to go and uh, go and vote on November the 1st? Or is this the kind of thing which is going to scare off soft right-wingers? And... That uh, Rotman and his uh, and his party think that putting this out there is going to help uh, the bloc. Obviously, they wanted to help their own party. The fact that they're the ones putting out this this plan would probably pull some more Likud voters away from Likud to religious Zionism. And the polls are showing that uh, that shift taking place. Whereas Netanyahu doesn't want to lose voters to religious Zionism, and certainly doesn't want to lose voters to to the other bloc. Sure. I mean, we're not the Haaretz legal podcast, but we are a Haaretz podcast that deals with the minor issue of democracy. And I think that this is fundamentally an issue of democracy because, you know, it has to do with the relationship between state and citizens, which will be severely affected by this kind of a plan. And I think what really strikes me is that none of the center left parties, I think tragically, uh, have made a serious counterattack, a serious counteroffer. They have not put out plans. They have not 
seized on this issue as a central part of their campaign. Now, they all talk about it. They'll all say, oh, you know, we, we, we stand for protecting the judiciary. We will, you know, try to hold back the right on this stuff. But I think it's almost like they think that's fine to just let the right wing run with this issue. And I think it's a tragic loss. But, you know, your, your strategic analysis is interesting because if the soft right, and there was traditionally, you know, a, a strong element within Likud that was extremely supportive of the judiciary, uh, if there's anybody like that still left in the BB supportive block. Yes, well, the parties haven't uh, really talked a lot about issues in this election, as uh, uh, as you said, and, and that's partly because I think some of the issues that they did try to run with didn't really didn't really catch the public's attention. I mean, there was at the very beginning of this election, it seemed that Likud and its partners would be going, be going very strongly on an anti-Arab message, and they sort of left that pretty early, I think, because of their strategy to try and keep the Arab turnout low and rather than making that an issue which would perhaps push Arab voters to the polls. Then Netanyahu uh, seized on the cost of living, and he's still talking about that, but it's not really become a major thing in in, in the electoral discourse for some reason, which we should perhaps discuss. And then there were all kinds of uh, other issues that kind of jumped up and, and then very quickly fainted. There's the core curriculum in Haredi schools, which was part of the of, of the issue. That was the main issue, which almost split United Torah Judaism, and it came, kind of came out into the news with Netanyahu promising the Haredi schools that they would get a higher level of funding no matter what they taught. Um, I think all these things could have been important issues in the election, and we can mention others. Why do you think they haven't? Well, the, the issue of the economy is always interesting. We did have a whole episode about that with Kermit Flug, and we think, I think that um, it's a little bit unfair to say that, uh, the, which the voters tend to say, that the parties aren't really discussing the top issue, which is their economic hardship, but the parties are. And I just think the voters don't trust them on it, so therefore it's a dead letter. Uh, there are some differences between them, but ultimately there's too much in common that I think the voters, again, have a hard time distinguishing between the parties on this issue. Um, and I guess, you know, the issue of the core curriculum for Haredi schools, I think, is an interesting one, um, but it's not changing any attitudes beyond the blocks, right? It's all a matter of uh, the very fragmented Israeli politics that is that deals with a very particular sector. I don't think anybody's going to change their mind from block to block, and probably not even between parties because I don't know if anybody's going to change their mind from block to block, but this is something that does worry Netanyahu. We saw him yesterday at a conference where he was interviewed on the stage, and he was asked about it, and he said... I'm going to make sure that everybody studies English, not just in schools, but even from kindergarten. And then he was at the Haredim. Yes, the Haredim as well. They'll want to do it. He was, he was kind of, I mean, he was obviously being very hazy in the details, but he understands that even within his own block, there is significant disquiet at the fact that an entire generation, well, not an entire generation, but a huge proportion of an, of a, of the, of an Israeli young generation is growing up without... Uh, without studying these uh, these essential subjects. So Netanyahu, on the one hand, doesn't want to talk about this because he needs his Haredi allies. And on the other hand, he knows that this is something that there is disquiet to. So he 
you know, he'll address it, but he'll try and kind of say something very vague about it. But right. But since we're also not, but since we're also not a Netanyahu exclusive podcast, we should talk about the real enfant terrible of this whole election, which is the new head of United Torah Judaism, Yitzchak Goldknopf, who has been kind of the star of the show. He has mounted such a defiant opposition to core curriculum in schools. He mounted I, what I consider to be a challenge to state authority. In one interview with Israel Hayom, he said, who's the sovereign here who gets to determine what we teach? And he even parodied Lapid's United Nations speech saying about supporting two states. He said, we already have two peoples here, Haredim and seculars. Interesting, there's nobody in between. But So I think he's not taking any of this you know, line that, oh, the Netanyahu can force the Haredim to have core curriculum. He's taking a very bold position on his own. Yes, but there's nothing new about this. This has been the one of the core disagreements between the between the Israeli communities since before the the state was founded. There's nothing new about Golknov's challenges to the Israeli sovereignty. It, it, it's it's even it's enshrined in the status quo deal that that, that Ben Gurion signed with the Haredi rabbis before the state was was founded. That they get various autonomies, and this is something that we are still dealing with today. But What's amusing about Goldnov is that he's a newcomer to frontline politics. I mean, he's a he's a veteran Haredi, uh, 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 Askin. What's the right word? A macha. I'm not quite sure what, what we would call it in English, but he's he's been Wheeler he's anyway. been in internal politics for many many years. But this is his first foray into national politics. The first time he's on the UT, UTJ list, and. That makes him a rather amusing interviewee. He says the kind of things that the, the more seasoned and experienced Haredi politicians know to fudge when they're being interviewed uh, on uh, national television. We say that the voters aren't really interested, aren't picking up on these things. I mean, how do we know that? <laughs> we know that because every morning we get up and pray that there will be some change in the polls, and every morning we see no change in the polls. How do you know that, Angel? I know that because I have an unerring ear for the Israeli psyche. <laughs> well, I've learned that polls matter, and so does the gut. I learned that from James Carville. He always trusted his gut, and he was usually right, but he also read a lot of polls. Should we talk about what's going on in the polls? I think that uh, you're sick and tired, we're all sick and tired of the polls not changing over the last four months. So give us, once again, the state of play in the polls. The state of play is that on the surface, nothing has changed. And you know what's going on below the surface? Nothing has changed, almost. But there are tiny creeping trends. So Likud is still strangely, maybe not strangely, trending just a teeny bit downwards. When I looked at the October average of all polls, Public polls published during October, the average is now 31.8. That's really continuing the downward trend, but in a very, very tiny way. Uh, Yeshatid is pretty steady, but also robust and has gone up just a teeny bit since the beginning of the selection cycle, averaging 24 seats. Tiny, tiny, tiny upward trend for Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Bitenu, 5.8 at present. And I recall that Yossi Shane on our show said that uh, Israel Bitenu always gets two seats more than the polls. I'm not sure if it's a hard and fast rule, but it's not impossible. Shaked, Ayala Shaked, and the Jewish Home Party are still averaging at two and a quarter points. It's really a full point away from crossing the threshold. Angel, do you think we're going to have any surprises with Ayala Shaked? No. Okay, that was fast. The BB Block, Netanyahu's Loyalist Party's drum roll, their average is 59.8 seats. It's, it 
it's not even really a trend. I can't even call it a trend with such tiny shifts. And it's still nowhere near 61, let alone 62, which is a better way to form a coalition. And we have four parties hovering between life and death. Labor and Merits are getting about five seats each. Labor is slightly over five. Balad is absolutely below the threshold in every poll. Hadash Tal and Ram are reaching eight total. No change, no movement. Angel, do you see anything interesting going on in the polls? Or do they just, you know, cause any neurons to fire in your brain that reach to your gut and give you some instinct about the surprises we might expect? I mean, we spoke about it already. I think the most interesting thing happening in this very uh, unchanging poll is what you mentioned, this trend downwards of Likud. Those votes are going almost exclusively to religious Zionism. That's a really fascinating trend within the block. It's not going to change the overall picture. It will have, if if Netanyahu does somehow eke out a majority, it will have a huge uh, influence over uh, over how he can build a, a coalition. He's not going to enjoy having such a massive uh, far right partner, even though he'll be thankful that that they've helped him deliver. A majority that to me is the most interesting thing happening and i i think we could conceivably speak a whole uh, talk a whole episode about uh, about where who, who are these people where are they coming from why is uh, religious zionism with its far-right component uh, on 14 even 15 seats i've seen a couple of polls should we even be surprised but that's... I don't know, but their average is 13, and I wouldn't be surprised if they go above 13, but the question is how much. And uh, that's it for the bets? polls. No, we're not placing any bets. We'll wait for next <laughs> week, and next week we'll place a couple of bets because we have at least one more episode before the actual election. And since we're almost done, Dahlia, it's your turn for the favorite part of our week. animal. Usually we talk about trivial or historic parties that may have been forgotten in the Israeli political system. This week's party animal is neither trivial nor historic. It has to do with membership. You know that Likud, Anshul, has about 137,000 members. Labor has around 36,000. We know those numbers because they held primaries recently. Which party has plenty of seats in Knesset, hundreds of thousands of voters, and even once came in third place in Israeli elections, but has no members? Does Yeshatid have formal membership? I think they do. They do, but I have to say that Yeshatid makes it hard to find that number. Hint, this is a party that we haven't talked about too much on this show. Because it's been rock-solid stable, there's no question about which block it will go into. And so far, that could have described Yeshatid too. So it doesn't give us much room for debate, but it is... I'll give you what, one more hint, Are we talking about Yisrael Beteinu? No, I, but I will give you one more hint. And this is a party that you... Personally, have a lot to say about. I've got to say about all the parties. The party, no, but this in particular, this is the party called Shas. Why doesn't Shas have any uh, members, and how do we know this? First of all, I have to give credit. This tidbit is due to the fearless reporting of a colleague of ours at the Marker, Chagayamit, who has kept up with the court challenges to Shas by a group called Nivcharot, women, Haredi women who want Shas and every other Haredi party to have women members and women candidates and ultimately women legislators who are in the Haredi party. So they took Shas to court, as they have taken the other parties to court. And after all, Israel's law of political parties says that membership needs to be open to all citizens as long as they're not members of another party. So Shas answered, we're not discriminating against women. We just don't have any members at all. We haven't even set a fee for our membership dues. Now, some people think this is a silly response. No, it's not. It, it, it is actually it. something that it has in common with other parties. Not every Israeli party goes to the trouble to having formal membership. 
Maybe not, but this is for a particular reason. And I think it's interesting because it's part of a, a longer campaign on the part of these activist Haredi women to break into those parties and have representation. And I think that what's really, the question on my mind, Angel, which I think you are best placed to answer, is what would the, how would Israeli policymaking or, or the Knesset look, what would be different if there were Haredi women legislators in those parties? I think it, I think it would be changes? very different. I think that we would never, we will never have Haredi parties with female uh, representatives Never? because that would def well, that would defeat the entire reason for the Haredi parties. The Haredi parties are in uh, are basically representatives of the of of the senior rabbis of the Council of Torah Sages, uh, as they call them. It's their right hand men who it's their political lackeys, whatever you want to call it, who are sent to the Knesset. It would be inconceivable in the way the Haredi community is constituted today for there ever to be uh, women in that role. Now, if it, one day it may happen, but, but, but by the time that happens, the Haredi community will be so different from it is today, it won't have that, this kind of political party. Let's make uh, uh, one... Uh, uh, I, I think we have to say one thing about these parties which have no membership. It's also typical of parties where there is no internal system, uh, for no internal electoral, electoral process. So Yisrael Beitain doesn't have members either because Avigdor Lieberman or, or his tiny committee that Avigdor Lieberman basically runs are the ones who decide upon uh, uh, who decide who the candidates are going to be. I think the fact that Shas and also United Torah Judaism don't have members is not so much to keep women out. It's just because their, their, their whole idea is that they represent a community. They don't represent a membership. And we also know that the condition for joining Shas, according to their takanon, their platform, is that you have to uh, be an observant Jew and you have to listen to the Torah of, what's it called? Council of Torah Sages. Council of Torah Sages, right. Tough. So this is our party tidbit for the week. So always glad for Shas to be in the party animal corner. And that's your election overdose for this week. With just 12 days to go, you can read all you need to know about the latest twists and turns in the campaign and the finest election analysis out there on Aritz.com. We'll be back with you next Thursday, the last Thursday of the campaign. Who knows, perhaps with some actual shifts in the polls, but don't bank on it. I'm Anshul Pfeffer. With me was the one and only Dr. Dalla Shendlin. Our producer today in Aritz Studios in Tel Aviv was Nahara Malkin. And of course... You, dear listener. Until next week, have a wonderful weekend and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.